so it's a blessing to be with you. Before I get into the message for this afternoon, I'm going to ask the Lord to be with us to as we go through this presentation. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath afternoon that we can come together and study your word. I pray for each person listening. Pray that you would speak through me and that you would bring just what is needed for each one that is here. And I pray that we would hear the Holy Spirit touch each of our hearts in the way we need to be touched. So be with me now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for this afternoon's presentation is The Pathway to Mount Zion. Now, last evening we talked about prophetic peril in America. This morning we talked about the prophetic destiny of Adventism. This afternoon we're going to look at the pathway to Mount Zion. And this comes from Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to look at what the Bible says here in verse 1 of Revelation 14. Now, I'm actively writing a book on Revelation right now, and I'm actually in chapter 14 right now. I can tell you that when I spent the hours that it took to get through chapter 13, and we talked about chapter 13 last night, and you see the first beast, which is the Roman Catholic Church state power, and then you see the second beast, which is Protestant America, and then you see Protestant America speak like a dragon and pass a Sunday law, and all the world wonders after the beast, and it seems as if the whole world receives the mark of the beast. It's a little bit of a downer to, to when you come to the end of Revelation 13, and it seems as if Satan's strategy to deceive the whole world is so successful. And then you come to the very next verse, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, and you know, I've studied Revelation 14 and given messages on Revelation 14 for years, and I know Revelation 14, you know, pretty well at this point in my ministry experience, but I find, of course, every time you go through it, you find new things. You can never know everything. If someone says they know everything, they don't. You can never know everything about the Bible, and I'm finding all these new things that are jumping out at me, but what really struck me as I came to verse 1 of Revelation 14, is here you've just finished where all the world wonders after the beast, they worship the dragon and the beast, and they receive the mark of the beast, and it seems as if Satan has been so successful, and then you come to verse 1, and in verse 1, John says, and I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. You can hear the excitement and the joy in his voice. He's like, look, lo, wow, this is amazing. Because as soon as he sees this picture, as soon as he sees this scene, he knows that God has been victorious over Satan in the great controversy. He knows that God has defeated Satan in the final crisis of Earth's history. And what he sees that tells him that the victory has been gained after seemingly all the world is wandering after the beast and worshiping the dragon is he sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 having the lamb's father's name in their forehead. And when you've just seen what seems as if a victory for Satan where 
the whole world has gone after this false system of worship to then be presented with a scene of victory. And in the book of Revelation, after chapter 14, God is always victorious and the devil is always defeated. It's a magnificent scene. This is one of the most magnificent scenes in all of Scripture because you see the Lamb, Jesus who died on the cross, standing with his redeemed 144,000 on Mount Zion. And so what we're going to look at this afternoon is the pathway to Mount Zion. What was the pathway that the Lamb took to get to Mount Zion, and what is the pathway that the 144,000 take to get to Mount Zion? This is the picture that we want to understand, because this, again, is the most momentous scene in Scripture, because this tells us that God has been victorious that Jesus has come again, and that the redeemed are with Christ in heaven. After seemingly all was lost from a human standpoint, when all the world seems to wander after the beast, there's the lamb standing on Mount Zion. So it's a magnificent scene. So, here's what we're going to look at. The very first thing that you see is that John saw a lamb. And the Lamb is the title that is used to describe Christ in the book of Revelation with respect to his sacrifice. But we also see that in other places of Scripture. We also see this in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We also see it in Isaiah 53. And we're going to come back to Isaiah 53 a little bit later in our study. But you can see very clearly that Isaiah chapter 53 is referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. John 129 is referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And then when you come to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, we have the introduction to the seven seals. So we have the introduction to the seven churches in chapter 1, then you have the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 4 and 5 are the introduction to the seven seals. And in Revelation chapter 5, John sees this book with seven seals written within and on the backside in Revelation 5 verse 1. And the question is asked in Revelation 5 verse 2, who is worthy to open this book? And they couldn't find anyone in heaven or in earth or under the earth who was able to open the book. And John knew that this book was so significant, and so he weeps aloud. And then he's told, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. So he hears that it's the lion of the tribe of Judah that is worthy to open the book. But when he looks to see who's worthy, what he sees is not the lion. He sees a lamb as it had been slain. And so Jesus is described as the lamb who was slain. You know, it's interesting. The lion represents the king of the animals, and the lion goes forth to devour its prey and its, and its conquests. But that's not how God conquers. The way Christ gained the victory over Satan is that... Yes, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the way he conquered is not through the method of the lion, but it was through the method of the lamb, through his sacrifice on the cross. So we see that here in Revelation 5. So we see the lamb standing on Mount Zion. How did, how did Jesus get to Mount Zion? 
So we see he's the lamb who was slain. And Revelation 13 verse 8 says that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Ellen White says as soon as there was sin, there was a savior. Now, the cross guaranteed that the promise of the sacrifice was ensured. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the guarantee of him being the lamb slain, of him being the sacrifice. But the promise of that sacrifice and the promise of salvation was already present way back from the beginning of time when Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As soon as there was sin, there was a savior. So the way that Jesus gets to Mount Zion is through his sacrifice as the lamb of God. Now, there's more to the story, of course, and this is what we're going to look at now. So in a basic sense, we see that that the way that it is possible for Jesus to stand on Mount Zion with 144,000 is because of his sacrifice on the cross. And that's pretty basic, but it's very important. So how do the 144,000 get there? I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12 is a very significant passage that shows us how we're going to get to Mount Zion. But I'm going to start in verse 18. And Paul makes a statement here in Hebrews 12, 18, telling us where we are headed. He says, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. Now he's referring to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where the Ten Commandments was given, and that's symbolic of the Old Covenant. And he goes on to say in verse 19, And the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So that's not where we're going anymore. We're not headed to Mount Sinai. Notice where we're headed. Verse 22 says, But you, but ye, are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. So there you see that Mount Zion leads us to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, which is in the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's the end goal. But Hebrews 12 actually shows us where this pathway begins if we go back to the beginning of the chapter. Because, you know, a lot of times you'll hear a message, and I've heard lots of good messages, and I've even given messages that talk about running with patience the race set before us in Hebrews 12. But then we never get to the end of the chapter that says this race is leading us to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That's where the race is leading us to. That's the pathway to Mount Zion. But let's... Look again at Hebrews 12. Let's dig into this and see what the Bible says about this race that has been set before us. So Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now that word for patience can also be in tr translated endurance. 
So we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and we're to run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us. Now, interestingly, this word for patience or endurance is the same word in the Greek as Revelation 14, 12, which says, here is the patience of the saints. So that's significant. What do we do as we run this race? How do we run this race, the pathway that we're on? Verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So what we gain from this understanding is that as we look to Jesus, we see he's the author and finisher of our faith, which tells us that this race that is set before us is the race of faith. And the beginning point of our faith begins with Jesus. And the ending point of our faith begins with Jesus. And what we see is that as we keep looking at him, we see he's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we run with endurance, the race set before us, we see that Jesus endured the cross. That tells us that this race of faith, that is a pathway that leads us to Mount Zion, begins with Jesus as the author of our faith at the cross. That's where, our, where, where the Christian faith experience begins. And when we meet Jesus at the foot of the cross, we lay aside the weights in our lives and the sin in our lives, the things that would prevent us from running the race of faith that is set before us. Because the race begins at the cross, but it doesn't end there. The end goal is to not stay at the cross. The cross happened on this earth, and in the sanctuary system, the cross represents the outer courtyard or the earth. But Jesus goes to heaven to the holy place, then to the most holy place in 1844, and he plans to take us to the heavenly home someday. And what we see in Hebrews 12 is that, yes, the race begins at the cross. We can't get to heaven without meeting Jesus at the cross. Some Christians try to do that, but it's not possible. We, the only way to heaven is through the cross. The cross is the beginning point in the race of faith. It's the anchor point that will lead us all the, all the way to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That's the end goal, is to get to the heavenly kingdom. So we are to run with patience or endurance the race set before us, laying aside every weight, the sin which so easily besets us. We are to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured the cross. Now, how did he endure the cross? It says, who for the joy that was set before him. Now, we know what the joy that was set before him. It was seeing the redeemed in heaven. So he had something to look forward to that helped him to get through the anguish, the mental and the physical and spiritual anguish that he experienced on the cross. How do we endure the race of faith that is set before us? It's by beholding Jesus. He's the joy that is set before us because we have the promise of being with Jesus in the kingdom. Just as he saw that by his sacrifice, the redeemed would be in the kingdom with him. That was the joy set before him. The joy set before us is being with Jesus in the kingdom. Now the race continues because we see that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and that's in the heavenly kingdom. That's where we want to go. We want to be seated with him on his throne. That's the promise to Laodicea. But let's keep going here. Verse 3 says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, 
lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. So Paul almost knows what you're thinking. He's like, you know, you're running this race of patience. You're running this race of faith, faith with endurance. And you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And Paul knows under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this race of faith is not always easy. To run a race with endurance, to run a marathon, requires significant endurance. And this race of faith requires significant patience, significant endurance. And the only way to run it is to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who is the sacrifice on the cross. He's the Lamb of God. And it says, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. In other words, think about what it was like for Jesus on the cross. He goes through Gethsemane, and he is betrayed by Judas. And as he goes through his farce of a trial, he's being spat upon, he's being mocked, he's being beaten. And Paul says, consider him and what he endured on the cross, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And in modern language, we would say, lest you get tired of the fellow sinners in this life that you encounter. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. You know, it's, it's easy to talk a good game. It's easy to talk about Jesus. It's easy to talk about the cross. It's easy to talk about how we want to be in heaven. But this race of faith or this race of endurance that is set before us is beset with certain pitfalls, primarily having to endure the difficulties that fellow human beings throw our way and the trials that come in our lives. You know, it's not easy to deal with difficult people. And Jesus had to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself. And so Paul says, consider him. If you think you have it hard, Think about how bad it was for Jesus when he endured the cross. And so this is the race that is set before us. This is the experience that Jesus endured. Now, it's interesting. When you continue along in Hebrews 12, verse 5 then says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. Every son whom he receiveth, if ye endure, endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And in Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So Hebrews 12 is giving us another description of the Laodicean message. You know, the Laodicean church 
it's interesting. This is where the 144,000 come from. But you look at the Laodicean church, and this is the church of the judgment hour. This is the church that is going to stand through the final crisis. And Jesus gives a testimony of his judgment hour church, because Laodicea means a judged people. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. A, a witness gives testimony in court. So here we are in the judgment hour of earth's history, and Jesus is testifying in the judgment courtroom of heaven, saying, my church is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and I'm rebuking and chastening you because I love you, because you need to be zealous and repent of your lukewarm condition. The problem with Laodicea is we want a pathway to Zion that is smooth sailing. We are looking for a pathway, and this applies to Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists, who believe in the 2300 days, 1844, and the Sabbath, and the second coming, and the spirit of prophecy, all of these things. But the natural inclination is to say, Lord, I believe the truths for this time. I can give Bible studies on Daniel and Revelation and the state of the dead and the truths of Scripture. Can you just make my life smooth sailing and easy so it's not going to be so hard and difficult? That's what Laodicea is looking for. And so Jesus is saying, you're not getting what I'm trying to bring to you when the trials of life come. You're missing the point. And so Paul says... If you didn't get what Jesus meant in Revelation 3, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, Paul brings it home again. He's like, you know, whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. And the chastening of the Lord is part of the endurance that we are to experience as we run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us. Jesus endured the cross. We endure the race of faith that is set before us by enduring the chastening of the Lord that he sends our way. And, you know, he goes on to say, you know, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much be rather in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And so, you know, he, he says this is necessary um, he says we need this because this is for our prophet in Hebrews 12.10 that we might, might be partakers of his holiness. One of the challenges in Adventism is that Adventism is looking for the Mount Zion experience without receiving the chastening of the Lord. We'd love to partake of the holiness of God without going through the chastening of the Lord that he brings to us. And when you look at the 144,000, it says they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. You see here that the pathway that is set before us in Hebrews 12 is so that we may, might be partakers of his holiness. Isaiah 57:15 says of the Father's name that his name is holy. The 144,000 have the Father's name written in their foreheads because they've been partakers of his holiness and they've allowed the chastening of the Lord to remove the sin and the weights from their lives that have been weighing them down, that have been weighing us down, me down, you down. Let's make it personal. These are the things that are preventing us from being part of the 144,000. And so, so here scripture says, run with patience the race that is set before us. And we're like, oh, that's nice. Let's, let's have some patience in this experience of life. It's deeper than that. It's running with endurance and, experience and experiencing endurance to the degree that Jesus endured the cross. And the way Jesus endured the cross, he 
suffered the contradiction of sinners against themselves. And Paul says, you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. You know, so many times we're like, okay, I'm going to follow the Lord. And then there's this line that gets crossed and that line gets crossed and we stop resisting sin unto blood and we lose our tempers and we lose our Christian experience. And the Lord takes us over the ground again and again to purify us, to chasten us, to remove the impurities from our lives so that we may might be partakers of his holiness. And this is where faith comes in. When we learn to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we realize that he's taking us through these experiences so that we will be chastened and that we will be purified and that we would be partakers of his holiness. It's not fun. It's not easy. But it's necessary to be part of God's last day people who will be prepared to stand at the end of the world. And, you know, verse 11 says, Now no chastening, this is Hebrews 12, verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. You know, nobody likes the chastening experience. Nobody likes the trial. But notice what it says. Nevertheless, and whenever you see the word nevertheless, what comes after it outweighs what was said before. So yeah, it's not fun to be chastened. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. This is how we experience righteousness by faith. As we go through these chastening experiences, we develop the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that's one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. And righteousness is certainly part of that as well. Righteousness by faith is, is part of the fruits of the Spirit. And so Paul says in verse 12, he says, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down on the feeble knees, which is a metaphor to describe being crucified with Christ. Lift up the hands, surrender to him, allow the nails to be driven through, allow the chastening of the Lord to take place in your life. Lift up the hands which hang down on the feeble knees. Be crucified with Christ and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So there's the experience of holiness. When we surrender to the Lord and we allow him to chasten us, we develop the peaceable fruits of righteousness and holiness in our lives, which is necessary to be part of the 144,000. So again, you look at Revelation 14, 1, and John says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. What he sees is a group of people, the 144,000, who have run with patience or endurance the race set before him. They have looked to Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. They've resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and they've allowed the chastening of the Lord to develop the peaceable fruit of righteousness and holiness in their lives. That's the experience we need as Laodiceans. And so that's... That makes a lot more sense when then Paul comes down to verse 18 after he talks about running with patience the race set before us, about enduring the chastening of the Lord and making straight paths for our feet so that we can have peaceable fruits of righteousness and holiness. Then he says, you're not coming to the mount that burned and that could be touched or that burned with fire into blackness and that could be touched 
We're not coming to Mount Sinai. We're not coming to the Old Covenant experience where we make empty promises, where we say all that the Lord has said we will do. No, no, we're coming to a different mountain. Verse 22, we are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So God is saying, I'm going to have a new covenant people. The law of God is going to be written in their hearts and minds. They will have run this race of endurance where they look to Jesus on the cross as the author of their faith, and when he finishes their faith, they will be found on Mount Zion with the Lamb. That's the pathway to Mount Zion. Now, there's more to the story here. Zion, Mount Zion, is found in multiple different places in Scripture. We see the city of David first described in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6-10. through 10. We see Zion and Jerusalem sometimes used interchangeably. Zion can be used to describe the people of God. It can be describing the location of the deliverance of God's people in Joel 2.32, for example, in Obadiah verse 17. There's something else that's interesting about Zion that I found. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, and I want to take you there now. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. And this is a messianic prophecy, but it's also talking about King David. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, Scripture says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now, what we understand from this passage is that David was installed as the king of Israel on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And that's where he reigned from, or that's where he was installed as the king of Israel. That's where the throne of David was, was established, over the kingdom of Israel. And David, of course, symbolizes the, the throne that Christ will rule upon. And, of course, if you follow along in Psalm 2, the verses that follow verse 6 are a messianic prophecy describing Christ. But David was installed, literally, as the king of Israel on Mount Zion. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. This is where things become even more interesting. Let's go to Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, and we're going to see some comparisons between the throne of David and the throne of Christ. So we see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and there's so much significance to this. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 32, or I'll pick it up in verse... 30. We're talking, this is Mary speaking to the angel Gabriel here. It says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Now notice verse 32. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So notice this. Jesus is going to be given the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Remember, the throne of David was established on Mount Zion. 
And so when the throne of David is given to Jesus, that means that he has come back as king of kings and lord of lords, and he will be reigning upon his throne, the throne of David, from Mount Zion in heaven. So when John sees this picture in Revelation 14:1, where he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, he not only sees the Lamb of God, he sees Jesus coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as he's described in Revelation 19. He sees that Jesus has come back of king, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he is now reigning as the King of the universe from the throne of David on Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. There's another interesting point about the throne of God here, the throne that, that Christ reigns from, and that's in Revelation chapter 12, where we see that um, in Revelation 12, 4, we see that the woman was ready to deliver the child. And in verse 5, it says, She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So Jesus was caught up to the throne of God. So he's been at the throne of God since he ascended. And he was in the throne of God in the holy place, and then he moved into the most holy place in 1844. But when you see Mount Zion and the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, it evokes the imagery of the throne of God and the King of David from Psalm 2. Here's the other interesting thing. Uh, as we think about the pathway to Zion, how did the Lamb get there? How did the 144,000 get there? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says to the Laodicean church, now remember, this is the church that he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore, and repent. In verse 21, he says, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So how was Jesus caught up to God into his throne? It's because he overcame. First John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So how do we overcome the way Jesus overcame by the same faith that he used. That's the faith of Jesus. So Jesus can be on the throne of God and he can reign from the throne of David on Mount Zion because he overcame. When you see the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, that tells us that they overcame the way Jesus overcame and they are now by the throne of God, just as Jesus promised. So the 144,000 come from the Laodicean church, which is rather remarkable considering that the Laodicean church is a lukewarm church. But those who heed the message of Jesus, those who are zealous and repent, those who allow Christ to come in so that they can overcome as he overcame, have the promise of reigning with Christ on his throne. So... That, that's a beautiful promise as well. Now, here's something else that I want you to look at when we look at Revelation 14. So we see that the 144,000 stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And we see that they sing this, a new song, which has never been sung before. We see they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Now, here's the thing. This race of faith, that were to run with patience or endurance, this is a pathway where we follow Jesus, the Lamb of God, who he's enduring the cross as the slain lamb 
And as we learn to follow him on this pathway to holiness that's described in Hebrews 12, this prepares us to be part of the 144,000 who, as we learn to follow him every step of the way on this earth, we will follow him wherever he goes, wherever he takes us throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. What a promise. Now notice verse 5. It says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. You know, Zephaniah 3.17 says, The remnant of Israel shall... Um, not or shall do no iniquity nor speak lies neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth that's a, basically describing revelation 14:5 but revelation 14:5 is describing two key characteristics of the 144,000 that we find in Jesus as the lamb of god in their mouth was found no guile, and they are found without fault before the throne of God. Let's unpack this. Let's go to 1 Peter 2. And the 144,000 are found to be like Jesus, which is why they have the Father's name in their foreheads. So 1 Peter chapter 2 um, says, For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults you take it patient? You shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. You know, it's one thing when you mess up and you're rebuked for it to take it patiently. It's another thing to do what's right and to, to be chastised for doing so and to still have a Christ-like disposition. That's what's acceptable to God. And then verse 21 says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So here's the example that he has given us. He's given us an example of suffering. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body. Now, First Peter 2 is quoting Isaiah 53. That's its reference point. So Jesus, there was no guile found in his mouth, no deceit found in his mouth. You know, it's so easy to lash back when we're being hurt. When we're being hurt, we want to fight back. We want to lash back. But Jesus gives us an example of committing ourselves to the Lord. Now, yes, we want to speak up when there's sin. We want to call sin by its right name. But if, if we are being mistreated, we want to have the example of Jesus. Now, notice Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So this is what First Peter 2 is, is referring to. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. So there's the Lamb of God, Jesus. He reviles not again. There's no deceit. There's no guile in his mouth. And the 144,000 have the same experience. That tells me that when the 144,000 go through the final crisis of earth's history, when there's the issue of the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, and all the world wandering after the beast, and there's a death decree, the 144,000 don't fight back with their tongue. Just like Jesus, there's no guile, there's no deceit in their mouth. Just as Jesus as the Lamb of God gives us the example on the cross, the 144,000 follow the example of the Lamb when they go through the final crisis of earth's history. And this is what it truly means to endure the chastening of the Lord and to run with patience the race that is set before us and to 
resist unto blood striving against sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, did so. We can do so too. Now, the other thing is, it says that they were found without fault before the throne of God. Now, the word for fault is the Greek word amomos, which means to be without fault, without spot, or without blemish. And, of course, Jesus is the lamb without blemish or spot or fault. And it just so happens that in Hebrews 9, Jesus is described as the lamb of God without blemish or spot. And in the English, if you go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, in the English, it says without spot, but the Greek word here is amomos, again, just like it's fault in Revelation 14, 5. So Jesus offered himself without spot or without fault or without blemish. He was the lamb without blemish, without spot, without fault. And the 144,000 are found to be without blemish, spot, or fault in Revelation 14, 5. Interestingly as well, in Jude Verse 24, it says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. In the English, it's translated faultless, but the Greek word for faultless is also amomos. It's the same word in the Greek as you see in Revelation 14.5 and Hebrews 9.14. This is the amazing thing. The 144,000 are like Jesus, the Lamb of God no guile in their mouth, without blemish, without spot. They have endured the chastening of the Lord on the pathway to Zion, so that they've run with patience the race that is set before them, and they've taken seriously the call to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, and by beholding they have become changed. Friends, by beholding, we can become changed and become part of the 144,000 so that the sins in our lives, the faults in our lives can be removed as we look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He really can take away your sin. He really can take away that guile, that deceit from your tongue, from your mouth. He really can remove the faults from your life. He really can write the Father's name in your forehead. He really can teach you to follow him step by step right now on the pathway of faith that has been set before us. So that this description of the 144,000 isn't just some nice theoretical experience that some generation will have sometime in the future. No, this is the experience that God is calling us in this generation, at this time of Earth's history, as we're living through a pandemic, as we're living through civil and social unrest, as we're facing an uncertain election, God is looking for a people who, rather than looking to the world around us, will look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And as we behold him, we become changed into the same image from glory to glory. And as Ellen White says, the closer we come to Christ, the more sinful will, will appear in our own eyes. So we won't notice the change, but the people around us will see the difference and they will be grateful. And we can lead more people to him. This is the pathway of holiness. 
This is the pathway design. It's a pathway that the Laodicean church must walk, where we endure the chastening of the Lord. And it doesn't lead us to the old covenant Mount Sinai. It leads us to the new covenant mountain, the mountain called Mount Sinai, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the place we all want to go. That's where the path takes us. It's not taking us to an indefinite wandering in the wilderness, no. It's taking us to the heavenly Jerusalem. The question for you and the question for me is, do we believe this? Because the children of Israel had the old covenant experience where the spies went into the, the promised land and they came back with an evil report and said, it's too hard. The giants are too great in the land. But you know what? Just as there were spies that went into the earthly Canaan to spy out the land, do you realize that, that God sent Ellen White a, a vision that showed us what heaven is like? You can read it in early writings. And it's so clear. It's a goodly land. We are well able to overcome it. Why wouldn't we want to take possession of the heavenly kingdom? The challenge is, is that too many of us shy away from taking up our cross and following Jesus and of running with patience and endurance the race that is set before us and of learning to look to Jesus every day step by step. We run our own races. We do our own thing. We live our own lives and our careers and we show up to church once a week. And God is looking for a generation who will be all in and will be totally invested in who will say, this is the moment of opportunity. Let us go up at once and possess the land because we're well able to overcome it. This is the moment of time to possess the heavenly Canaan. We want to see Jesus and be with him on Mount Zion. And friends, let me tell you something. When Revelation 14.1 turns from prophecy to reality, I want to tell you, there's nothing more in the universe that I want than to be with my family, my wife and my daughters, on Mount Zion with a lamb who made it possible for me and for you to be there. His redemption, his sacrifice makes this all possible. Without Jesus' death on the cross, we couldn't be there. But as we, are, we behold that sacrifice, that matchless sacrifice, and as we see his love for us on a daily basis, our hearts will be melted to the point that we will be willing to endure whatever chastening that needs to happen in our lives because we love Jesus so much so that we can be there with him in the heavenly kingdom. So friends, that's my challenge for you today. I want to be with Jesus in the kingdom, with my family, and I know you do as well. And that's my appeal to you. May we lay aside every weight in the sin so that we can run that race set before us. So let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. May he take away my sin. May he take away everyone's sin who's listening to this presentation. May we be part of a special group who says we are going to run with patience the race that is set before us. We're going to come to, the, to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and we are going to be found faithful. And we will endure the chastening of the Lord. We will repent of our lukewarm experience. 
we will cheerfully walk the path that is set before us. And someday soon, we can say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.